Hi. Uh, my name's Natasha. I'm an alcoholic. Hi. I'm actually from Australia, in case you think I talk funny. That's why. That's why. Uh, but I live here in the Bay Area. Um, and um, I am a very grateful and happy member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And because it saved my life. Um, and, you know, it's not, you know, we say, oh, it saved my life, but no, it really saved my life. Like, I, I'd be dead now if it wasn't for, for the fellowship. And uh, I, I'm a trans woman. I'm very out about being trans. Um, I think it's important, you know, to be visible. Trans is beautiful. And um, thank you. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, in, in the beginning of my life, I was a young boy, or, and I grew up in, in Australia. My father was an alcoholic, and he also wasn't particularly nice. He was uh, a, a mean alcoholic. And he, you know, as a young boy, I was kind of naturally feminine, you know? I... Um, I, I wasn't putting it on. I just had this sort of way about me, at, you know, at five or six years old, of being um, girly, I guess. But um, And it absolutely horrified him. I remember the look in his face looking at me, and I, I'd be like, oh, really? I, I, it was natural to me to be all sort of, I don't know. I, it was just, look, how I speak and sound and act now is kind of what I was like as a... As a small child, it just was, that's just how I was. But my father was horrified by that. And he tried um, to tr get me to act masculine and all these things, but it didn't work. And um, he took a, a, his belt to me and uh, took me into his room, his special room, his den where he used to drink and um, put me over the couch and, and take a, a belt to me, saying, act like a man. And um, it didn't work. It didn't work. And um, there was this antagonism and anger between my father and I. And so when I was like 12, 13, 14, I was... Um, you know, wearing women's clothes, it just, that also, I never got any training from that. There was no RuPaul's Drag Race. Like, I, I didn't know how to do that. I just put that frock on and, you know, fixed up that hair. I, it was just part of who I was, you know. And, you know, I thank God the world has changed. I mean, that, I'm talking about, like, the 60s and 70s, but the world has changed a lot since then, thank God. But back then it was tough. And I kind of was forced to leave home uh, at maybe 15, I think it was. I, I was still in school and I had to leave the home and I stayed with other people and I partied. And there was an under, underground um, gay kind of scene that I used to go to where they had dance parties and it went to different venues. This is in Melbourne, Australia, in, in the early 70s. So I would go out there and go to things and I didn't have any money so I sort of was on the streets as a prostitute at a young age, you know, wearing um, 
you know, uh, provocative, oh, I don't know, you know, short skirts and high heels and what have you, at 15, you know, and 16. And um, what happened was, you know, in hindsight, those formative years of my life, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, where other young people have all these milestones. They get a car, they go to a prom or whatever, they um, have their first uh, crush or relationship or whatever. Those wholesome teenage young adult years um, for me were spent on the streets, in the back of cars, um, having sex for money, being in trouble with the police, um, and, and that's, that was my upbringing. That's how I w formulated who I was as, as a grown person. And there were some bad lessons out there. Well, they, I, I learned things about survival that I thought were truths later that I, I realized that were not truths. And some of those things were that people were not to be trusted ever about anything, you know, I was 15, 16, uh, that friendships were never what they seemed because the other person always wanted something from you, but it was hidden. Um, that intimacy in any way, like people even hugging, um, there was going to be a price, but maybe the price wasn't like 20 bucks, maybe it was like later there'd be a price. Um, That's what I believe was true. And um, that you couldn't trust anyone, people were going to let you down, people were only ever nice to you because they wanted something from you, whether it was sexual or whether they wanted something from you. And so, you know, I was a pretty bitter and angry and unhappy young person. And I never really had a proper education about what it means to be a human being. Um, I never learned the skills um, to even do the most basic things. I learned how to survive, I had street cunning, but I didn't have uh, the ability to have a friendship. I didn't have the ability to have any kind of really basic relationship even. But I did know how to take drugs and I did know how to drink booze and go to clubs and, and, and that sort of thing. And I sought to be high because um, it was, that's how, you know, I didn't even think of drugs and alcohol. I thought of them as staples like milk, bread, sugar. You know, I just, you had to have uh, powders and, and, um, and booze. And I, you know, I, I was a heavy, heavy user of drugs and, and alcohol at that time. And so, you know, things happened. I ended up kind of burning out and getting in really bad trouble really quite young. I sort of, I've been sober twi for twice, so I've got a complicated history, but I'm just trying to sort of, I'll, I'll kind of, I'm blending it together um, for the purposes of um, time management before. <laughs> um, so anyhow, that's what I did. And... I ended up in rehab at, I think I was 25, uh, maybe I was 26, 
and I ended up in a state, um, in Australia, in a state, or like a, a, a city detox unit or something like that. It was rough. And that's when I was first introduced to the, to the program. And, um, you know, I have... Um, I, I survived those years... But it took a long, long, long time for me to unlearn some of those lessons that I had as, an, as a teenager. It took, it's, and I'm still doing it, you know. I'm 50-something now, and I'm still unlearning some of that stuff. And it comes back up again for me. You know, still sometimes the anger, the bitterness, the hostility will come back up for me. And, uh, you know, it's directly from what I learned in those years. You know, we alcoholics and addicts, um, I often have a really rough upbringing, you know, and many of us that I, I meet in these rooms had it really tough as young people. And, um, and, but we survive, you know, we, and, and through the program I found a way to live, not a new way to live, but a way to live, because the way I was doing was a way to die, you know. That's where it was going. And through the program and in these rooms I've... I've I've unlearned some of the stuff that I learned that wasn't helpful or useful, and I've learned new stuff that is. And it's, it's been so much for me, this AA program. In many ways, the AA program has given me the parenting that I never got, you know? The basic lessons about life and living and being a human being and inhabiting your own skin that I never got. I didn't get those lessons, but I got them in these rooms. And, you know, I'm um, a relatively comfortable, happy human being now because of working the steps and getting the training that we get in these rooms about how to... just how to function. I didn't know what it meant, I really didn't know what it meant to have a friend, um, but in these rooms, in sobriety, I've learned that. And it, what I learned also surprised me because it's nothing complicated. It's really simple. You say, oh, can I have your phone number? Uh, I'll give you my phone number. Let's call each other up. Let's go to the movies. Or I'll come to your place and we'll talk. But I'll, I'll go to your place when I don't feel like it, but you want me to come around? And that's, that's what I learned in AA. And, oh, there's somebody who I like, I get along well with, we kind of laugh together. We'll go to an art gallery or go for a walk or whatever. And then when they call me and I don't feel like talking, I'll talk anyhow because they want to talk. And then a, a year or two down the track, you think, oh, I can call that person. When the shit hits the fan and things get difficult, I can call that person because I've got a background, a history of closeness with them. And I thought, oh, so that's what friendship is. You know, this is me as a mature person. Go, oh, okay. So that's how, <laughs> that's how you have a friend. All right. And I've got friends. I've got friends, you know, in the AA program. Recently, um, I had some very difficult uh, issues, situation in my life. Um, something really bad happened. I won't go into. But the first thing I did was I thought, you know, I need to tell my people in AA. So I sent a text to a friend in AA saying what had happened and then I cut and pasted that text and sent it to about 10 other people that I'm close to. My sponsor, my sponsees, um, 
two or three good AA friends. And I got an uh, overwhelming uh, response within a few minutes of people saying, let me know what I can do. I'll be here for you, etc." That's what friendship is. That's what friendship's about. Put in a little work and, and get huge rewards. But don't do it for the rewards. Do it for the love of it and for the joy. And, um, you know, I, I learned that in the rooms. But when I came in, I was... Oh, apart from anything else in my background, which is uh, uh, my family in Australia are Orthodox Jews and went to synagogue and were quite religious, um, my grandparents and my parents. And when I was a child, I went to the synagogue and um, I kind of didn't mind it. It was a bit like this. It had red velvet seats and... (laughs) It had a downstairs and an upstairs, and all the men were downstairs, and all the women were upstairs, some old business about not mixing the genders or whatever. And I was stuck downstairs, and I looked up at all the women upstairs, and they all had their furs and their dresses, and I thought, oh, God, I need to be up there. I did. I was like a child, and I thought, I need to be with the women. Uh, I want to go up there. As a small child, I was allowed to go up there, but then I got to an age where I wasn't allowed to go up there anymore. Um, but it, um, I went there and it was, a, you know, there were stained glass windows and a big dome, and I had a sense of awe of, of a child of, of maybe God, maybe some powerful creator or something like that. But then because of my rebelliousness and difficulties as a as a teenager and running away, I kind of left that all behind and led a relatively godless life. I didn't really really think about God. I didn't think about the question, is there a God, etc. I just was too busy for God, you know? And I it wasn't until I came back into the rooms and came back into the program that people started talking about making the decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understood him. And I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of desperate enough at this stage to try anything that I'm told to try. Um, but I don't really know what the con- my idea of God is. Um, so I just thought, well, whatever I believed as a child, yeah, I kind of thought there was a God and I kind of thought there was some divine power in the universe controlling things and I thought you know I will I will think of God as that God and so the God that I conceived of as a kid I in recovery as an adult I I brought that God back in just because I didn't know what else to think of and um it was like a um a fire uh, they have those fireside, those heaters where they have log fires burning and you have a lever and it, I'm not very mechanical. It gets air in and then a, a flue. Is that what it's called? Like a, yeah, you have them in a log cabin and they have a little <laughs> lever. And uh, overnight you let them go down to coals and in the morning you open it and the air comes in and the flames come up. And that's what happened to me. This is true. That God that I believed in as a child and I let that God be there when I came into these rooms and allowed myself to be open to the belief in God, it it came back and took fire 
and I believed really strongly in, in that God. And it's kind of... Um, so it wasn't like a Judaism God or anything. It's much better because I don't have all that dogma and all that bullshit about the women sitting upstairs and all that thou shalt not do this and you can't do this and that on Saturday. Um, but I have the same God, but I have the AA program instead of the... I'm not saying... I'm not trying to say that AA is a fundamentalist religious program, but I'm allowed. AA gives me the space to be allowed to have my own God that I believe in that fits and sits comfortably with me. And um, it's been wonderful, you know. I really believe strongly in that God that's <coughs> looked after me. And I think, you know, there were so many times I should have died, so many ways that my life should have ended early. Um, but um, I survived for a reason. I survived the AIDS epidemic. I... Um, Never contracted HIV, although many were the times I had unprotected sex with strangers. Ne never uh, contracted HIV. Um, escaped a lot of really scary situations and survived um, despite, um, you know, th th that I, sh I probably shouldn't have. And I do think that that, that is God's work and I don't know why. And sometimes I say, why have I survived? Why have I survived? There has to be a reason for all this. And then I think, oh, whatever. Just get on with your day. doesn't matter if there's a reason. Just, you know, do it. And what I'm starting to realize now, almost being almost 60, I think, you know, getting older is a privilege that a lot of people that we know in these rooms don't get to have because they died from disease, they died from this disease and other diseases um, because they go early. And, you know, the, the opportunity to be sober and get old is a real blessing. I'm really aware of that. You know, some days I go, oh, my God, my face, my face. But other, I think, oh, Natasha, you feel lucky that you can, you know, look in the mirror and say, oh, I'm getting old because a lot of people don't get to do that especially in, you know, the people that we know. Um, so getting God back into my life was um, a, a miracle, really, for me. Not back into my life, but into my life. And, um, you know, doing moral inventory and um, having a good look at what went down in steps four and five was really useful to me, um, and interesting, too, in that I thought of myself as such a bad person that I was so evil, almost, and negative, and I had such a bad self-image and so much shame and guilt when I came into these rooms. When I put it down on paper and talked, to it, talked about it with someone, um, it wasn't as bad as I thought. The actual things that I had done that were illegal and wrong and immoral, there were some, but there weren't that many and they weren't that bad. The, the things that were really bad, well, the things that really affected me were things I hadn't even thought of, like how I had hurt, harmed others by my absence, how I had been a bad friend, how I'd been a bad sister and child to my parents and siblings, etc. And I was able to look at that. And automatically, after I'd done that work, 
I realized, you know, Natasha, you're bad, but you're not as bad as you think, you know? It's, it seemed like there was hope to work through some of the stuff. And really the, the looking into oneself and the deliberate construction of a life and a personality that we do in the, through the steps in these rooms and with our peers um, is really, really priceless. People go to all sorts of therapists and what have you and, and pay lots and lots of money and spend hours and hours and never do the kind of work that we have to do to stay alive. And I had to do this work. And when I worked step six and seven, really, I had to look at what aspects of myself uh, were useful to my fellow man and to God and what aspects weren't. And I had to look in the mirror and say, who, who am I? What is it about me? What are the components of my personality? Or what are the qualities that I have? And um, um, what do I like? And, you know, I didn't really know until I was in recovery. I didn't know who I was or what I was or how I was. I, I didn't have to reconstruct my personality. I had to construct one. Because I was a mess. I was all over the place. I was a kind of feral survival kind of person, you know. I, I, I could be however I had to be to get through a situation. A lot of people with a background in sex work. And, and a lot of people say that anyhow. Um, scrap the sex work thing. A lot of people in these rooms say, you know, I could be any number of things that I had to be. Because we learn to survive as um, practicing alcoholics. And um, so I got to um, construct or decide who I was and what kind of person I was and what were my qualities in recovery through steps six and seven. They were really important. That was a really important aspect to my recovery. And when I got to make amends to my family, um, you know, my parents had died. My father died and I... I had a bit of relief from that. I wasn't glad when he died. I kind of was, I'm sorry to say, but I had some relief. I, he, he wasn't a malevolent um, force hovering over me anymore. And um, I got to work on resentments. I had this big, big, big resentment against my father. And I think I put, you know, I also had resentment against authority, the police, institutions, etc. But a, a lot of it was all like aspects of my father. And I've learned um, through the program not to hate him um, and not to resent him anymore, just to accept the things were the way they were and to, to embrace the past, say, thank you, but I'm moving on. You know, and not keep looking back at the past and not keep dwelling on it. And I don't anymore. It just what went down went down, and that's how it is. And um, I have learned in this program that resentments kill you, that we alcoholics love to brew up a good old resentment and think, oh, that bastard, oh, that bitch, look what she's done. And we love all that. And we sit there and fume and think of, enumerate in our minds all the ways they've done us wrong. And I'm going to get back at that person. I am like that by nature, you know. But I've learned that it's unhealthy. You know, resentment's unhealthy. And also it, 
they say, you know, it leads, leads us back to drinking. And I believe that. Because when I get a bit of a resentment and I let it go in my mind, you know, I start feeling the way I felt when I drank and used. You know, it's unhealthy. So I try to let go of resentments. I try not to. So I can even now feel them starting up and I think, eh, don't go there. You know, I just, I just let it go. I, I, I get to decide what to spend my mental energy on to a degree. And um, so, um, yeah, working the steps has been miraculous. My family, I was kind of more or less estranged from my family in the towards the end of my uh, drinking and using days. Um, and did you hold up the time card? I didn't see uh, how long I've got left. Oh, good. And um, so I'll slowly start working my way towards a climax. Okay. Um, <laughs> it'll be good for you. It'll be good for me. <laughs> um, I, um, oh, I've, I've forgotten where I was. Where was I? Thank you. Uh, um, so working, uh, you know, I was, I had a brother and two sisters and I was kind of estranged from them and relationships were bad between them and I got to work, I got the, oh, I was so lucky, I got the joy of being able to work through that stuff with this program and to, and I had a really good sponsor at the time and I went to them, each of each of them separately and I said, you know, I need to make amends. I've been a bad sibling to you and and I put you through so much and I want to know how I can change that or make it right in the future. And funnily, all three of them had very different responses and very different dialogues. My, my older sister said to me, I'll never forget it, she said to me, Natasha, every fucking night since you were 16 years old where the phone rings in the middle of the night, I think that somebody rings to say you're dead. You know, and I have been living with your addiction and your drama and your problems for years and years. And, you know, I need a fucking break. So it's glad, I'm glad that you're sober and what have you. So go off, have a nice life and leave me alone. That's, that, that's what's my sister's response. I said, is that what you really want? She said, yeah. So I did. But uh, over intervening years, I've been there for her and come back and she's changed. Um, she's changed and I've changed and our relationship as sisters has changed and we're quite close. She's been out here and visited and stayed with me. We got on really well now. But I've got a, a brother who I was kind you know, I said, you know, how, how can I be a good sister to you? And he said, I'll tell you. I've got four children and when they have birthdays, I want you to know what the birthdays are and send them a gift. That's what I want because... Um, I want them to know family. It's really important to me. I said, I will do that. And I did do that, and I went and stayed with him and his wife, and then he went overseas on, on vacation, and I, once I went and stayed with the three younger ones and cooked for them and looked after them. And then um, the next time um, 
he was going on some kind of trek, I don't know, the Himalayas, I just made that up, but something dangerous, not the Himalayas, the something trail where they go on the mountain and narrow passes, and it's, it's quite, it's an adventure thing. The Kokoda Trail, could that be it? It's in New Guinea, I think, it's some, I don't know, something dangerous thing. Um, tramping, hiking, hiking, <laughs> in the nature. And when he went, he said, oh, oh, Natasha, he said, I've got to sign this form for insurance things or whatever, and I want to say that if, uh, if anything happened to me or Carrie-Anne, um, that I would want you to be the legal guardian of our children, and we've discussed it together, and we think that you would be the best and most appropriate person to parent these kids. And I said... Oh, how thank you. That's so moving. That's so moving. I'd been sober a few years by then, but I changed so much. I'd become a responsible person, you know, someone that... And we AAs are good, you know. We turn up, we do our stuff, we look after people, we, we make a promise and we stick to it, you know. But I had to show him that by my behaviour, you know, to get to that point. And I was just so moved by that. And I said, Howard... Please don't have an accident, Doug. I don't want to come over and have to be a mother to these three children. But I, I appreciate it. But luckily he survived. And, uh, <laughs> I never became a single parent to three teenagers. Um, but, it, you know, that was absolutely the power of the program working in my life. I was someone that people were, you know, wanted to keep away from. And, and I changed through, through the steps and the program into someone that people trusted and, and wanted. Um, and that was pretty miraculous. And, um, you know, I keep doing my stuff. I keep working the program. I keep working the 12th step. I try to practice these principles in all my affairs, meaning I try to treat people in normies in the real world in the same way that I treat my AA friends. <clears throat> I try to um, do the things that I learn in the rooms. Say you're going to show up, show up, just be there. One thing that's in my life that's so important that I've learned in these rooms is I can think whatever I damn well like, but it's what I say that's so important. I've got my, you know, I can... I can think murderous thoughts about people, but if, I, if I'm pleasant and polite, people respond in, in a positive way. And I, I really, I've learned that in this room, and I really do that in the real world. I think what I think, but I act and speak in a, a way that's not offensive most of the time. I just, I, I just bite my tongue sometimes, and I just think, I, I go to say something, and I think, Sometimes it's best to say nothing. And I've learnt that in here, like everything. And um, I do try and pass a message to um, alcoholics. I really try to pass a message in my trans community. It's difficult because, you know, a lot of trans people don't come into those rooms, or they do when they go out again. But I, I stay sober and I try to be there in case any of those people... Um, want some, you know, fellowship with, you know, sober, recovering, healthy, trans people. So I, I do try and do that. And I sponsor people. And I get a lot of joy out of that. 
I really do. Um, I have two sponsees that I really in, enjoy and adore, and I, I'm in, in constant contact with them. I really help them to try and put the steps into their life and try and change, and I, I give them any experience that I hear and learn from the rooms. And um, those sponsees are the people that um, make such a difference when things are difficult for me. I contact them and I talk to them about themselves and I get out of my own head and into someone else's head and I stop being so focused on self and I can focus on someone else because I really care because I'm doing my AA job and passing the message and trying to sponsor and trying to love other people the way I've been loved in these rooms. And um, do you know what? I am comfortable in my own skin. I am happy in who I am. I walk with my head held high, like this. <laughs> and I wouldn't want to change. You know, I'm very happy within myself and comfortable in my own skin. That's what I used drugs and alcohol for. I, I wanted that fear. I used chemicals <clears throat> to change the way I felt so I'd feel comfortable. Now I get to do it in a healthy way in these rooms. Um, with the program, and I don't need uh, drugs and alcohol, and I really um, am a very, very grateful member, and thank you for listening to me. Thank you. Thank you.